Luke chapter number one. I've been enjoying looking through the Gospels and doing these overviews. Jesus makes all the difference in our lives. It was really great. Um, there have been some times that we have doubted um, just not been sure about my grand grandmother's salvation, and it was awesome to see the Lord's the Lord working in her heart the last couple of weeks, and um, the last that we was so evident was the day before she passed. She passed last Sunday afternoon, and on Saturday she had lost all ability to hear or to see, and so when somebody would come in to the room and touch her, she would make an assumption about who it was. And when my mom got there to see her and she touched her, she said, I'm dying. I'm dying. She said, are you Jesus? And so she was ready and um, she was looking for the Lord. And um, when somebody's assuming that Jesus is there to get her the day before she dies, that gives you some real peace about um, her relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and um, there were other evidences in the last couple of weeks that God had worked in her heart, people she had been bitter towards who um, had passed on, and she saw them. She thought they were there with her in the room, and she wasn't mad at them anymore. And so those were just some little things that God let us see that um, the Lord had been doing in her heart as she'd gotten to the point where she couldn't communicate as well anymore. But it's just an awesome thing to serve a Savior who still lives and still works in people's hearts. So this morning, we are on the gospel according to Luke. When we looked at Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, we called it a royal biography. Uh, Matthew was writing to the Jews, presenting Jesus as king. Then we looked at Mark last time. Uh, we called it a servant's biography. He was presenting, Mark was presenting Jesus as um, a servant, and he's writing primarily, it seemed, to the Romans. And now we come to Luke, as far as we know, a Gentile man. Um, I'm calling it a manly bio. My other option was an edemic biography, and that was really big words, so I went with manly, because he's presenting him as the son of man or as the second Adam. Therefore, when he gives his genealogy, he's going to not go back to David, not go back to Abraham. He's going to go all the way back to Adam. And so he brings him, he presents him as the son of man. A, a key verse in the gospel, according to Luke, would be um, Luke 19.10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So let's jump into this. If you remember the way we've been looking at these, um, each of the four gospels was written from a different perspective. And except for the gospel of, um, of John, we don't have the author giving us his name at the very beginning, but the early church fathers confirmed that um, early church tradition said that these three men we've talked about, or the two we've talked about, the one we're talking about today, are the authors. I see no reason at all to doubt these. 
Um, but they were written from a different perspective. They were written for a different people group, each one of these gospels. So if you ask yourself, why are there four? Well, different people are writing them, and they are writing them to different people groups. And we're going to see that mentioned here in the beginning of Luke. And then for a different purpose, each having a specific purpose, some of them a little harder to find, but if you... Um, sit down and study the gospel, you find a very pointed general purpose. Luke is very specific here with what the purpose of his account of the life of Christ is going to be. But they all fit together to present a complete picture of Christ. So if we want a full picture of Christ, we need all four. But um, each one stands alone, and so that's how we are um, looking at them as each one standing alone. So let's begin with number one here, perspective. What is the perspective? We believe this was written by um, Luke or Dr. Luke, or as Paul called him, the beloved physician. He was uh, a doctor, a medical doctor. This is going to be very, if you consider a medical doctor writing this, um, it really brings new perspective to the birth story of Christ, all the details that are mentioned, even not just his, um, his birth, the conception of Christ, um, that fo the focus that is taken on Mary. There's even great focus on um, the, the law being fulfilled in Christ but you have a very orderly, a very organized layout throughout the Gospel of Luke, which would be very appropriate when it's written by a doctor. Um, he is a man who is trained to be orderly. Let's read these first few verses, um, and then we'll go on talking about Luke. Um, Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration or a narrative, of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. We'll look at some of the details of those, but notice in verse 1 and in verse 3, he uses the phrase in order. He's writing an orderly timeline here. You go to the doctor for um, something. Jonathan's on crutches. He went to the doctor last week. Brother Schlichter had kicked him in the knee at family camp. <laughs> Not really. But um, Brother Schlichter was close by when it happened, I've heard. So, but no, they were playing volleyball late one night at family camp. And anyway, next thing I know, Jonathan comes hobbling over to us. And one knee is twice the size of the other knee. Um, so I called a friend on staff at Alert there, and he sent a medic that lives on campus. And she came and checked out his knee. And what does she start doing? She starts asking questions. Well, when did this happen? How did this happen? Next day, Jonathan ends up in the doctor. What does the doctor ask? They begin asking questions. You have to lay out a timeline. Um, 
Jonathan has an appointment tomorrow to get it all looked at, um, make sure everything's healing well. And what are they going to ask him? For a timeline, right? They want to get the events in order. My dad was bit by a water moccasin on his finger. Um, and uh, seriously, I think it may have been the dumbest doctor I've ever dealt with in the ER. He kept asking us, my mom and I, he kept asking us, um, did he have diabetes before this happened? He, he doesn't have diabetes. But, but did he have it before this happened? This is a snake bite. Anyway, the doctor wouldn't even look at the finger. He didn't believe it was a snake bite, apparently. He thought it was diabetes, and my hand, dad's hand was swelling up. And it's all, Anyway, um, that was an unintelligent doctor. But once a smart doctor got to the hospital, he set things in order. Why? Okay, what happened? What kind of snake was it? He got all this information. He got the antivenom ready. He prepared for things. He had things for when my dad had an allergic reaction to the antivenom. He had things in order. Why? He was a good doctor. He was doing what he was trained to do. And here we have a doctor, Dr. Luke, who is doing, uh, he is taking what he learned in the medical field of organization and the Holy Spirit is using that to make a very orderly, consecutive timeline of the life of Christ and to give us details that none of the other writers gave. And so he's also, as I've already mentioned, we believe he was a Gentile. He was a traveling companion to Paul on some of his missionary journeys. In fact, he also wrote the gospel, um, uh, sorry, the um, Acts of the Apostles. And if you go and read the book of Acts, it says, and they, and they, and they, and they, and they. And then all of a sudden it says, and we, and we. When does he go to first person? When he's traveling with Paul, he speaks of, and we. Um, but when he's not present, it's they. And so you're able to know without him even stating it, you're able to know <clears throat> um, who, when Luke is with Paul and when he's not. So if you look in verse 2, we have a hint towards some investigation that Luke has done. There are authors, if you read commentaries on the book of Luke, um, there are commentaries that will get upset at saying that Luke did any investigation. It's all by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, there are people that get upset um, at saying inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they focus more on Luke doing all of these interviews, and Luke spent all this time with Mary getting details of the birth and all of this. And both sides get irritated at the other side. And so you'll read, and it's one thing or the other. And yet, as I read this, I'm like, I cannot argue with the fact that Luke has talked to some people. I cannot argue with the fact that Luke has listened to some people. Luke has read other accounts other than just Matthew and Mark. John hadn't been written yet. Um, Matthew and Mark possibly had been by this point. And so as you're reading this, you cannot argue with the fact that he did some investigation. Yet at the same time, we understand all scripture was given by God by inspiration. He did not have to have Mary tell him the details of the birth in order for him to know them. The Holy Spirit could have told him that. Yet Luke does something very interesting here. He brings both investigation, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let's read these two verses. 
Verse 2, even as they delivered them unto us, someone had delivered the accounts of Christ's life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So he's saying people who were with Jesus, people who saw the events of his life have already told us about this. And they were ministers of the word. Now, it's lowercase word because in um, the Greek New Testament, we don't have the same capitalization rules that we have in English. This could be capital W word, just like in the Gospel of John. Why would John have capital W in English and Luke not? Because we know 100% that he's talking about the person of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John when he uses the word, word. In the beginning was the word. He's talking about Jesus. He's not talking about even the word of God, the Bible. Um, But here in Luke, it's unclear which one it is. Were they ministers of the word, the things that Jesus said, or were they ministers of the word himself? Either way, they were ministers of both. These were people who traveled with Jesus, people who spent time with him. They were eyewitnesses. So Luke is using eyewitness account here. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Now, we ask, what does this mean? There is another way of translating this that I think gives us some real clarity. Another way of translating this uh, from the very first could simply be put, from above. What would that be writing? It seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from above to write unto thee in order. In other words, I have talked to eyewitnesses. I have read what they've written, people who were with Jesus, and I've also heard from the Lord. So I have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I have eyewitness account. And so he is putting these together to write to thee in order order. So what is the perspective we're going to get? We're going to get the perspective of a man who is very organized, very orderly, a medical doctor sitting down to write the timeline of the life of Christ. And notice what he calls it. He said in verse one, he's going to set forth in order a declaration or a narrative. He's going to give us an account of the life of Christ. Who's the people he's writing to? Well, if you look in verse number three, he calls the person he's writing this to most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus. Now, we don't know exactly who this person is. His name is interesting. It's um, a combination of two Greek words put together to form this name, Theo, which we have words like theology, um, it's Theos is God. And then um, Phyllis is from um, Philos, which is um, brotherly love or friend, friendship rather. Um, so he is the friend of God is what his name means. But he's referred to as most excellent. So he has a Greek name. So we're assuming this is some type of um, government official because he is referred to as most excellent. And that is a title or a, a, yeah, a title would be the right 
way of saying that, a title used in addressing Roman officials. We know that because if you studied the book of Acts, when, he, when um, Paul was speaking to Felix and when he was speaking to, um, oh, there was the one other, same, uh, actually, chapters back to back, Felix and Festus. He refers to one of them in the King James is translated most noble, and the other it is most excellent. It's the same Greek word. It's this phrase. And it's interesting because Luke was the only person who used the title in the Bible. The other times we know it was a high Roman official. Here, we don't know who this person is, but because he uses this title, we assume it would be a Roman official. Now, he wrote the book of Acts to the same man. He does not refer to him as most excellent. So some say in this case, it was just a term of endearment he's using. Perhaps it was, or perhaps um, by the time he wrote the book of Acts, the man was no longer in office. You know, I, I don't know what the case is. Or maybe by then they're such close friends, he's not going to refer to him in that way. But he refers to him as most excellent Theophilus. We assume he's some type of an official. Um, but let me read something that John Phillips wrote in his um, introduction to the gospel according to Luke. He said, as Mark had written to the Romans, so Luke wrote to, for the Greeks. The Greeks were noted for their intellectual power, and Luke's gospel was written in a polished literary style and in a more classical style than the others. So strong was the Greek ideal of perfect manhood that they made all their gods in the image of men, defying in the process their vices as well as their virtues. Oh, sorry, deifying rather in the process their vices as well as their virtues. Luke presented Christ as the perfect man, one who being more man and being both man and God could fully realize the deepest aspirations of the Greeks. You can boil it down simply, he's writing to Gentile peoples, presenting Christ, the perfect man. Let's look at his purpose. His purpose, he gave it as twofold. In verses 1 and 3, as I've already mentioned, he said he was writing to set in order a declaration or a narrative. Um, and then in verse 3, he's writing um, unto the in order, in consecutive order. I would say number one purpose is to construct a chronological account of the life of Christ. So what's the first purpose of the gospel according to Luke? Number one, to construct a chronological account of the life of Christ. Secondly, would, to be, would be to confirm the faith of Theophilus. Why do I say that? If you look at verse, well, beginning at verse one, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely, here we go, believed among us. He said they've written before what was believed among us. He says in verse three, um, sorry, verse four, that thou mightest know the certainty. He wants to make sure that Philof ah, Theophilus is sure. 
He's convinced, he's fully persuaded of those things wherein he had been instructed. So he's confirming his faith. Um, Jensen, in his New Testament survey, he put it this way. He said that it's to the purpose of Luke is twofold. Number one, its content is exact truth. He's being very clear. His form is consecutive order. So you want to follow the outline of the life of Christ, go to the gospel according to Luke. As I've already said, he presents Jesus as man, as the son of man, as the second Adam. Um, We've already talked about Luke 19.10, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So let's talk about and a few of the things mentioned in the gospel of Luke and think about how do they present Christ as perfect man. Well, if you look in chapter 3, first of all, a man needs a genealogy, and he takes his genealogy all the way back to the first Adam. If you look at the end of the genealogy here in chapter 3 and verse 38, we've traced him all the way back to Enoch, or in Greek, Enos, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of of God. And I love how um, Luke puts this little tidbit, this little treasure in the beginning of his genealogy, verse 23, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. I love that, as was supposed. People assumed he was the son of Joseph. They supposed that he was. And of course, we know he was the son of God, and Luke's going to give more clarity to that when he gets to the birth story. Secondly, let's talk about his birth story. His birth story really struck me as funny this week as I looked at it again. And I thought about a doctor telling a birth story. Um, Doctors who deliver babies, I'm sure, have some really great, amazing stories to tell. Um, I know dads and moms enjoy telling birth stories. Um, You get with any new mom and dad, and they either have a dramatic story, they have a scary story, they have a funny story. You know, my parents on the way to Texarkana for my birth, um, the car broke down Sunday morning. uh, Actually, not it didn't break down. A tire blew. So my dad pulls over on the side of the road. My mom's in labor, pacing beside the car, and my dad's trying to change the tire. And uh, there's a man sitting on his front porch watching the whole event take place. Um, And my mom's still irritated at that guy for not helping and not helping my dad. Then there's the stories, of course, as my my doctor, um, Patrick Poteet, and I were born at the same hospital. And uh, we found out last week. And my doctor, my mom's doctor, was um, a Sunday school teacher at a Baptist church there in Texarkana. My dad was a pastor in Nashville, Arkansas. And they stood at the foot of the bed as my mom's in labor um, discussing what their Sunday school lesson and sermon would have been had I not disrupted their message. My mom likes telling how she told them that she didn't really care what either one of them were going to talk about that day focus on her. Um, So there's all kinds of details that are given, and it just really struck me as I went through this again this week how funny some of these details are from a dad's perspective. First, he talks about um, his cousin's birth, uh, John the Baptist, in chapter 1. 
He talked about his conception in chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, shows the miraculous nature of that. Um, and then he, talk, uh, he gave the mother's song, um, chapter 1, 46 through 55. We have this um, beautiful song that Mary um, composes here. Um, and you might ask the question, why would Luke give such an emphasis on Mary? Why would he put an emphasis on the mother of Christ? Well, every man needs a mother, right? So he's presenting him as the son of man. So he takes the time and the detail to tell about his mother. Um, then there's, of course, the details of the birth. First of all, how does he start in chapter 2? How do we start our birth stories to our children sometimes? Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll hear something on the news. Somebody will mention something that happened in history. You know, any child who was born right before Y2K. Oh, yeah, you were born right before Y2K. We were, we were storing up this and we were storing up that and this was happening. And, um, or maybe it was 9-11. Whatever the case, there's some event in history that will make us tell our poor children their birth stories again. Um, what was the, the historical context that it's put into here? And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And every time taxes are mentioned in the rest of Joseph's life, Joseph goes, oh yeah, I remember that, that big taxing. Yeah, that's when we were on our way to Bethlehem and we didn't have any place to stay. And yeah, um, or as I put it in my notes here, they had trouble getting to the hospital. What do I mean by that? There was no room in the inn. They end up um, staying in this stable. They end up putting the baby in a manger. Um, wow, we have the birth story of all birth stories. What's interesting here, except for the angel's announcement, there is nothing super miraculous, or and there's nothing strange in the story here of Christ's birth. There is the miraculous, but there is not the weird and the grotesque. Why do I mention that? Because there are ancient documents, stories, stories um, of the birth of Christ that get very weird. They get very strange. I had to write one, a paper on one a couple years ago in school um, that I would just every once in a while have to stop reading the gospel according to James and walk out of my study just <laughs> have to just tell Laura the plagiarisms that took place, the Gospel of James basically takes a whole bunch of stories from the Bible, puts them all together to tell a very weird story of the birth of Mary and then the birth of Jesus and the death of Zacharias and there's blood that freezes and turns into stone inside the temple and starts hollering out to God. Now, there's all kinds of weird stuff. The midwife touched something she shouldn't have touched and um, and her hand turned leprous. And anyway, when Jesus was born, he decided to heal her. I mean, it just goes from one weird thing to another. It's a very unbelievable type of account, and it just doesn't fit with the rest of the Bible. Um, the Gospel of Luke, on the other hand, he very carefully lays out the miraculous, um, but the rest of it is a, a pretty typical birth story. They can't find room at the hospital. I'm sorry, the inn. Um, there is a birth announcement. Of course, this is the son of God as well as son of man. And so for the son of God, the angels show up to give the birth announcement. It is quite a miraculous birth announcement. There are visitors. 
Do you have visitors when your baby was born? All these people want to come see your baby, hold your baby, touch your baby, kiss your baby. Laura felt like people were trying to lick our babies when we had the first one because I just wanted to devour Jonathan. Um, but there were visitors. There were shepherds that showed up that night. There's a a second birth announcement as the shepherds were so excited, they went spreading the news of the birth of Christ. And of course, then it goes from there. Uh, You follow the story of his circumcision. Why would this story be told? Because a Jewish man um, must have this um, procedure done as part of his keeping of the covenant with God. He received a name at this point. And what was his name? It was what Joseph had been told by the angel, call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There's the offering of the firstborn because a Jewish man should have this offering offered for him when he's born. In chapter 2, we see mention of his childhood development. Chapter 2 and verse 40, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. We see his maturity in the verses that follow. His parents had gone up to Jerusalem, and they had celebrated uh, the feast of Passover. Of course, we know the story. As they went home, they realized that Jesus wasn't with them, and so they get a ways down the road, and they discovered he wasn't with any of the relatives, as they had supposed. And we come down to verse um, 48, and they find him in the temple um, with these older men having deep discussions. He's asking very wise questions, and we see the maturity of him understanding what his life calling was. Verse 48, and when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, son, Why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Why did you look for me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? So we see his maturity, not only in having such deep conversations with the teachers at the temple, but we see his maturity in that he already understands what his calling is. He understands who he is. I am not the son of Joseph. I am the son of God, and I'm supposed to be about his business. That's why I'm hanging around at the temple instead of going back to the carpenter shop. And of course, in verse 50, they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and was subject unto them. We see his maturity again. Even though he realizes he has a higher calling than going to work in a carpenter shop and apprentice under his father, he has a higher calling than this, yet he puts himself under his parents' authority. He goes with them and is subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. Verse 52, we see his maturity even more, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. So we see his physical growth here as he's getting taller and in favor with God and man. So we see the whole person. I remember in CEF, um, in some of the curriculum when I was going through training years ago, um, this is one of the verses we looked at in child development. 
seeing how a child develops. They develop spiritually, that's in favor with God. They develop socially, that's favor with man. They, um, they develop uh, mentally, um, that's wisdom, and then they develop physically as well. That would be stature. And um, so, so we see him growing as a boy, as a young man. In chapter 3, we see his baptism. Luke gives another account of the baptism of Christ, which, of course, is where Mark started off. And if you follow through the, the account as Luke gave it, we see him continue to be presented as the Son of Man. Another thing we could look at in just an overview of the Gospel of Luke, and I encourage you to do this, there was an emphasis in the Gospel of Luke, and I never noticed this until the last few weeks, an emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it would be really interesting to go to Luke chapter 1 and read through and underline in your Bible every time the Holy Ghost, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. One reason why this is significant is because you've got to remember that Luke and Acts are a set. And what is the book of Acts? Some people say it could be called, instead of the Acts of the Apostles, it could be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit was just working through the apostles, working through the early church. And we see the power of God manifest through the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Well, Luke lays the groundwork for it. Why would Christ need the presence of the Holy Spirit? Because he was not only God, he was man. And man needs the manifestation of the Spirit of God in our daily lives. We need to follow the Spirit. We need to be walking in the Spirit. We need the filling of the Spirit. And we see that in the life of Christ. In fact, if you look at chapter 4, as his ministry begins, um, Luke lays this out in detail. Chapter 4 and verse 1, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, this is after his baptism, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Um, if you look down at verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And then he goes into Nazareth um, on the Sabbath day, he stands up to read. They give him the book of Isaiah. He opened the book and he found the place where it was written. And this is how he began his public ministry by reading this verse. The spirit of the Lord, chapter 418, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Interesting place for him to begin his ministry. Why would Luke record this so specifically? Because this is going to be an underlying theme in the entire gospel of Luke. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. He gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all that were in the synagogue were fastened unto, on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled 
in your ears. What is being fulfilled? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. So the Son of Man demonstrates to us what we need in our lives to minister to people. We need the anointing of the Spirit of God. We need His work. And of course, the groundwork has already been laid quite miraculously in chapter 1, verse 15, verse 35, verse 41, verse uh, 67, talks about the filling of the Spirit as... um, as Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, as, um, as it's, let's see, um, as the Holy Spirit is involved with um, Mary before the birth of Christ, um, as Zacharias is filled with the Spirit, it's amazing to read through and see all the ways that the Holy Spirit was involved in the life of Christ. Why? And I repeat, because a man needs the filling and the leading of the Spirit of God. And then one more thing, um, Ironside points out that throughout the gospel of Luke, there is an emphasis on prayer. Why would this be significant? Because a man needs fellowship with his God. Yes, he was God. Um, The gospel of John is going to take care of making that very clear. But here he is showing that he is also perfect man at the same time. And so he teaches us in this gospel how to commune with God, how to spend time with him, what it looks like to have fellowship with the Father. And we have been looking at the Great Commission at the end of each one of these. And it's interesting that Luke does not lay it out in the same way. Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 46, um, it says, And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father unto you, which was the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Notice in this, he does not record Jesus giving them a command to preach the gospel. Why not? If you go to Luke chapter 1, that's where he gives the actual account. Here, he records Jesus telling that the gospel is going to go throughout the world. If you want to read Luke's account of the Great Commission, you have to go to Acts chapter 1. Why? Because it's a continuing story of the gospel according to Luke. Well, our time is up, so let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us clarity in your word. Lord, I pray that you'd help each one of us. Lord, as we study, as we read, that even this week we would get into the gospel of Luke and we would see how that you came you as God came and put on flesh, became a man, became the perfect man, became the second Adam to redeem us, to save us, to seek us and to save that which was lost. Lord, I thank you that we can have this kind of a relationship with our God. Lord, I pray that you just bless in the remainder of the services today that you would be honored and glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.